Hello everyone and welcome back to the Amygdala podcast. This is a bonus 8th episode as part of the Regenerative series. I had a conversation with the chief architect of Sentient Corporation, Dr. Dave Garrett. Uh, Dr. Dave Garrett is, uh, as I said, he works at a corporation called Sentient, which works on creating semiconductor chips with edge AI which means that AI isn't stored directly in the cloud, but instead is stored on the chip. And what this allows for is the execution of multiple commands or the AI to pick up on multiple commands. Like if I were to say, Alexa, turn up the volume to a factor of four and skip the skip to the next song. Um, so that's how chip AI would be able to recognize that faster and with less obstructions than cloud AI. And so I had a conversation with him about how Sentient's products are doing AI at the edge in a regenerative fashion. And this was actually published, uh, or the interview was actually done many months prior, like I believe in summer of 2021, which is when I actually wrote a lot of these scripts. So... Without further ado, I would like to thank Dr. Garrett for being on my podcast. And yeah, here's the conversation. Okay, so my podcast is called the Amygdala Podcast. Uh, So the name comes from the emotional center of the brain, the amygdala, um, which is related in or which is involved in controlling the emotions of the human body. So uh, it works in conjunction with other parts like the hypothalamus to form emotions to form, especially like fear and anger and also um, happiness as well, or like the basic human emotions are controlled by the amygdala. So that's why um, I named it that way. And so for this, or my first sort of series within that podcast is going to be about responsible science in uh, AI. Yeah, so this episode is about AI. So my thesis or what I'm thinking about right now is that to be truly responsible, AI should be regenerative. And so regenerative, in my opinion, means that you put more back into the environment than you use up. So it's like one level higher than sustainability and sustainability isn't enough. So that's what regenerative means to me. And that's what's going to contribute to responsibility when it comes to AI in the environment and the ethics of AI and uh, social behavior and human machine relationships. So do you have a viewpoint or a definition on responsibility in AI research or regenerativeness, regenerativity? Yeah, certainly. I mean, you know, glad to, you know, jump on your podcast. I mean, uh, I think Sanat, we met at the coolest projects. Was that two or four years ago? Yeah, it's been a long time. I think it was just under four years ago. Right, right. Okay, great. I mean, you know, uh, I was a judge at Coolest Projects. I mean, I think it was really neat that I met you and you came into my company. Um, what's interesting, you know, uh, I'm at a company called Sentient and we build, you know, chips that do machine learning at the edge. And I think what you talk about, like regenerative 
AI, making sure you put in more than you get out of, of the environment. You know, one of the things we try and do is we're building machine learning to kind of intercept sensors and voice at the edge. And it becomes important because we can train machine learning, you know, uh, sensors to only act when something really significant has happened. So we're using machine learning to say, like an example, when we recognize a wake word, you know, you want to wake up a system. Well, all of these systems are, you know, burning energy 24 hours a day, you know, wasting energy, waiting for you to say something. What we do with AI is we train our chip at the very front end to recognize these words and to be very good at it. But what we can do with that is if we can recognize those reliably, we can can shut off everything else in the system. And, you know, like the example, when you say a word, there's a microphone that's listening, you know, typically it's going to open up a, a Wi-Fi connection to the cloud and, you know, find some server and say, hey, what did you say? And so everything in that path is burning energy. So Wi-Fi is consuming energy. There's somebody in the cloud that is a server that's processing what you want to do. Our goal is to stop all of that and use machine learning to be very good at finding, you know, really the events. I see. Um, so regenerativity through like making the chips smaller, right? And um, approaching the, approaching it through, I guess, tiny ML. Is that right? That's right. That's right. And we try and, um, you know, I've studied low power design for my PhD. So I was in graduate school on looking at exactly just low power chip design. And it's interesting, there's a lot of fascinating research. What it boils down to, if I were gonna put it in a single sentence is, is really don't do work unless you really need to. So all these computers and everything, like your computer sitting at nighttime, if you don't shut it off, it's just sitting there maintaining the screen. Like that's work that you don't need to do. And, you know, people in industry, you know, big companies spend a lot of time, you know, initially not worrying about that, but now doing things like sleep mode and trying to make, you know, do stuff only when you need to. And that's an extension of our, our strategy for that. I see. And it's funny, like biological systems are automatically built to eliminate the work that they don't need to do. Because like, for example, take a lizard. Um, it's an, it's, it's an ectotherm and um, it has to keep in the sun to keep warm. Um, but when it's not in the sun, it's, it gets cold. So if that's work that it's, or um, being in the sun, or I guess when it doesn't need to be in the sun is, or it's, a lizard is not in the sun when it doesn't need to be in the sun. Essentially, it's not doing anything non-essential. And all biological systems are built like that. That's so, right. I mean, I'll tell you one, one, one interesting thing. Think about your heart rate. So right. you go for a run, you're working hard, your heart rate goes up. You sit down on the couch, you relax, your heart slows down. We actually do similar things. People do these in silicon. We, we only run our clocks in our device as fast as we need to. And if we're quiet and we're not doing as much, we even slow everything down. So you derive a lot from biology, right? And yeah. Yeah. And the ironic thing is, um, 
like between AI and relationships to both humans and other um, biological systems is that the first person who built the neural network based it on um, the bio biological model of intelligence. Um, and um, in like the near, nearly 80 years that have passed since then, since 1943, when the first neural network was built, um, we've moved away from using neuroscience for neural networks and towards using math, which is not a bad thing. It's just that the lack of neuroscience um, makes, I guess, the name a neural network a little less meaningful. Um, and the impact of that is like it does unnecessary work, as you said. So um, do you use or do you have neuroscience, neuroscientists helping with the creation of your ML semiconductors? Yeah, so at this point, we don't. Um, you know, that, like you said, what's interesting about neural networks and they were, you know, when they were first invented, the difference between then and now is the training side of it. So neural networks originally, yeah, let's let's derive the intuition from the brain and a neuron has the dendrites and the, you know, the axons. And it's like, it pulls in a lot of information from adjacent, you know, neurons. There's a chemical firing that says, look, there's enough sodium that this thing should fire. And that's how these things kind of control the way that moves, it moves to your brain. And then it fans out to a large number of things. So people derive that side of it. The brain is billions of those, you know, the first neural networks, I couldn't do more than, you know, 15 of them just to do the math. But what has gotten really good is we now have the toolkits that are available for you to handle, you know, millions of neurons and teach these things meaningful behavior. And it's a very subtle thing, but this nonlinear function is really makes all the difference between what was classical math and neuro and sick and you know neural networks and it's really letting these neurons be trained and you know you listen to language as a person over and over again and you learn and you adapt that's what we're doing in these simulations is pushing you know millions of instances of training data and reinforcing that and uh, what I think is really amazing, like, you know, you could open up TensorFlow yourself, and I'm sure you've trained TensorFlow networks, right? Think of that framework. It allows you to just construct a neural network and use to train a neural network today. That would, you know, 20, 30 years ago, you'd have to go buy a server, you have to write all the math yourself. We are building this infrastructure, then millions of people can also take advantage of these, these structures. Yeah, um, and as we go from neuroscience and like into modern AI, how do you think AI is affecting the environment? So we talked, or we, we didn't talk, we saw, I guess, Tesla has stopped accepting Bitcoin as payment for its cars, right? So, and Mr. Musk said that that's because uh, Bitcoin mining is notorious for its cost to the environment. And that's because the power used to operating op, used in operating the computing infrastructure. So that's computing and storage and networking for machine learning models is very high. Um, how do you think um, a product like the one you're making at Sentient can help that? 
and how like what is I guess the environmental impact of a product like the one you're making at Sentient? Yeah, that's right. I mean, interesting. So Bitcoin, it's funny, is that the way it's constructed, right, to mine coins and to get the next one is you, they intentionally are making you do a tremendous amount of work, you know, to incrementally add another Bitcoin into the system. And so by definition, it's wasteful. That, that that's you know it is it is they've constructed it to make it hard to create the next bitcoin and that requires you to compute so you know we don't see that in our side i mean our side we train networks to be useful and it's not just computing for computing sake right computations for computation again we try and be a net positive so we can train a wake word and let, let's say we grab you know millions of millions of utterances of a word we could have one server train on that you know faster than real time just pepper our designs with millions of utterances and come up with an inference model which is now i can deploy this in millions of devices so we've amortized that i trained once i have millions of devices that can receive the same weights and that no longer have to train and so that's that's why we we are pretty good for the environment and that that's very centralized training once and then, like I told you, our, our entire job is to try and let our design be the front end and not burn any battery life, but give you these, you know, meaningful events. You know, again, I, I would say there are ways that people, you know, you can run the same neural networks that we put on our device. You can put it on a microprocessor, like you can have your PC do the same network because we build dedicated silicon we're way more power efficient at doing it so you could have the same answer it's just going to cost you so much more in energy i see um so how do you think that um so like another big issue with ai is that like with ethics right so most machine learning models are biased against minority opinions so recently or like i think it was a couple months ago there was the google employee timnit gebru or jebru i'm not sure um and she got fired for um i think it was publishing or she was fired after google blocked her publication um and her research that was about to be published was that um, AI was, or AI mod AI systems are biased against minority viewpoints. So how is, uh, or how do you think that um, um, a model like sentience can, or affects bias, or how can we decrease bias with um, a smaller, or with tiny ML? Right. I mean, what, okay, what's interesting about our devices and, and you know, this is the, the beauty of machine learning is we train it with data. So if I want to recognize a word, what we do is we're going to go collect, you know, tens of thousands, a hundred thousand utterances of that word. And I'll get multiple people to say it. We'll say it with a woman's voice, a man's voice with accents. And then we push that into our model. And we'll train it to, to, to recognize all of those wide range of voices that I collect. And if I go collect 
a certain dialect, right? A certain subset of people. And I train with that. That's inherently where then our model is only training to what you've told it to go do. So if everyone around me is the same, you know, that's, and I train with that data, that's where the bias comes in. It's not that the model is biased. It's that you have to be really careful on what you train against because that's the behavior. And we've definitely seen that. So we have a model, you know, we'll take a model with a word in American English and we'll go to Europe and you can go to India with these demos and they actually don't work that well. So what we do, we're very careful when we know, um, first off, if we want a world model, we're going to try and not bias it to, to be anyone like the US centric modeling, we will collect voices from everybody and try and represent that equally in the model. And then sometimes we can take a model like if we know we're just in country one country so for India, we could go in and collect the dialects from even India and just just focus on a model so it's good at that that place. Um, you know, it is diligence on the side of that part of machine learning, which has to be, you know, is important. I mean, what's funny is neural networks really, I mean, they will, they're mischievous in doing what you train them to do, right? So if you presented data, it's going to learn. The, the, the easiest way to do that. And there's some very funny things when people have trained, like say video games, like they'll take Atari games and they just let a machine learning, uh, you know, neural network train and figure out how to beat these games. There's some very funny shortcuts and bugs that they take advantage of that you, you know, as a game player, you would never know that. So you have to be somewhat careful in that. Yes, they, by definition, whatever you train it to do, is what it will do and it'll do a very good job of it. Yeah. Also, um, for another funny example, there are a lot of AI models that are trained to watch like a thousand and a thousand uh, hours of a show or, or a particular movie and write a script on it. Um, for example, there was this one AI that was forced to watch a thousand hours or more of Batman um, and created its own Batman script. And it <laughs> It made like one of the lines was uh, Joker saying, "You drink water, I drink anarchy," or something like that. So, <laughs> yes, right. So you've taken the source data. You have represented what Batman does, and Batman may not be the best representation of the world. So you have to be. It's 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 interesting. I mean, another there's a there's a there's some pretty interesting stories when we collect data, right? There's stories in the industry of like when you want to recognize images. And animals are, you know, pretty good at, you know, there's networks that can recognize images and say, look, this is a cat, there's a dog. And the story was they had one where they were Jaguar was not working well, it couldn't recognize a Jaguar to save its life. And when you actually dug into the training data, someone had tagged the car Jaguar. So the Jaguar recognition network was trained to look for the cars and not the animals. And so you've got to be very careful with your training sets to make sure you know it, it is what you want it to be, to be. I see. Um, 
I think this was probably the last question or a couple mm-hmm. uh, questions towards the end. So about uh, returning back to AI and human relationships, um, how much sentience or autonomy should AI have? And um, a follow-up from that is about like autonomous cars. If you remember um, when we first met, we, I was presenting on Luna, which was um, an autonomous car that could follow a line placed on the ground, um, also detect objects in its path. Um, so if you have, or if there are autonomous cars, like what are their applications and like how, who do they save um, back to ethics? And um, how much sentience or autonomy can AI have? Right. I mean, that's a very difficult question. <laughs> I mean, it is, it's, it is a, it's a question of, like I said, training, right? So the, the interesting part about, you know, automotive is like, you can say on average that these, every car was autonomous and trained with, uh, you know, self-driving, a lot of accidents would go away but you still don't have, you know, accidents going away completely because neural networks are fuzzy machines, right? They're inherently training and they have not considered every scenario in training. So again, I think you you have to be very careful on that side of it. And obviously these self-driving cars are improving a lot of things, right? They're going to start being better at the careless mistakes that people make. But there's also, you know, mistakes where the car does something that you don't understand and it's more about training and collection. You know, I think every car they're doing the right thing is just putting billions of miles into these networks and getting better and better at recognizing, you know, every scenario. And so that that's part of it. I mean, I think, you know, anytime you can take human uh, humans out of something that's inherently risky, which is driving a car at 70 miles an hour and not paying attention and driving off the road, right? That's a scenario where a human, <laughs> that's dangerous for a human and you've put yourself at risk every day. Self-driving could actually fix a lot of those things. Um, billions of miles doing, the, you know, every, all of these car companies that are doing the right thing is getting these systems out there. And, you know, some of them are, let the human first do the work and observe for a long time. So that's, I mean, that's, that's, that's what Tesla's doing. That's what a lot of the companies are doing. Ford, Waymo, um, observing and watching what the human's doing and just collecting the, you know, data. And, you know, I have seen, I've been, I've driven in a lot of places in the world, right? And so driving in Irvine, California, down this, the wide city streets is pretty easy. Driving in Bangalore with, uh, you know, six lanes of traffic in Mayhem, it's certainly a different algorithm. And how would you, how, how do you localize that? And driving in Italy is, is definitely different. We've got a lot of work, you know, to make that work in all environments. Right, and Bangalore in particular is um, very, I don't wanna say notorious, but it's streets are pretty hard to drive on. Right, but it's, you know, the interesting behavior is there a honk is, hey, I'm next to you. I just want to let you know that I'm next next to you as you're driving. So do you teach a machine learning auto car to honk to tell 
you know, the guy next to you who's not in a self-driving car that he's coming up, there's some interesting, interesting questions. Do you make traffic into form to what you want or do you try and train it to act like a local? Right. And right. like there's probably going to be a lot of power involved in training it for different cities, because if you're driving in um, like a city like L.A., which is a, co a good combination of a wide freeway and also um, actually more than one wide freeway, the 91, the 5 and uh, 405. So if you're driving in L.A., it's like very thin streets, medium sized streets and also wide streets. So how do you train um, a machine learning or uh, not a machine learning, an autonomous car to drive in a city like LA? Yeah. Um, yeah, it's funny. And even four, four way stops, there's right. um, like, if you, I mean, I've driven in Boston, Boston can be aggressive. Right. And if you don't nudge out, you'll never get going. And so you can see where a car that was conservative may never actually go anywhere in, in, in heavy traffic. These are all things that you have to have to solve. But again, I mean, I'll, I'll wrap up. I mean, I don't think there's a point, you know, in your life that's not affected by machine learning and AI right now. Yeah. I mean, just just the sheer fact that when you Google something and you're typing the words, it's completing your sentences with sometimes 90% accuracy. It knows what you're going to want to do next that that's that's amazing right that is machine yeah. learning at play that's making your life easier and better to organize and helping us you know just be better at life um you know everything in terms of optimization and you know, even airplanes and traffic and all that stuff there's all you know are not going to be untouched by machine learning and the field of medicine where i can i you know, used to depend on cancer experts to look at skin cancer, you know, over everyone in the company, uh, country. If I have an AI system that's been trained to do that, every person in the world can get the same level of care with regards to being an expert in skin cancer or heart murmurs and all these things. Like they're really, really amazing stuff that I think, you know, we'll, we'll use the right way. We're going to have some, uh, you know, lives are better because of it. Right. And um, I think actually those are all the questions I have. Um, oh, cool. Thank you so much for having you. me on. Yeah. Well, good luck with everything.